1: Okay, we have a very uh, atmospheric podcast this week, in which we're, uh, you know, Gazeta Football, España. It wouldn't be Gazeta, I speak Spanish. shouldn't should, should have made that mistake. But yes, it's me, Miguel Delaney, uh, here in Cal Pep in Barcelona, one of Barcelona's best restaurants, with our chief sports writer, Johnny Lou, to discuss um, the week's football. And quite a controversial week. Do you want to start with a big topic, or do we going build, to build up to... Uh, I kind of want to get you angry, so... Well, uh, we, should, we should probably explain why we're here first. Oh,
0: yeah. uh, we're, we're, we're in Barcelona for the uh, the Champions League game against Tottenham on, uh, well, tonight or tomorrow night, depending on when you're listening to this. Um, and, and having a little bit of tapas on
1: the way. Yes, yes. Yeah, well, then we may as well start with Champions League because I suppose this week is really all... I mean, a lot of the fixtures are relevant, bar except that those that aren't are actually... There's a lot on them. And two of the English clubs, Liverpool and Spurs, need... Uh, famous European knights one of them potentially very much tapping into their history Liverpool all the talk of Olympiacos all that where Spurs have to kind of go against their history and uh, claim a result in difficult circumstances in probably what has become the most difficult stadium to get a result in in Europe I think what what was the stat today about Barcelona and their home record Uh, they've not lost in 28 european games
0: at home uh, going back to that three nil against Bayern in uh, i think it was 2013 and in that time they've scored over three goals a game um so uh, that, that that's the job facing facing tottenham tomorrow night um Barcelona, they they're, they're not going to be at full strength but they, they they play these sorts of games for fun uh, even a second, well, no, no, a second-string side, or with um, Luis Suarez not playing, you know, they 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 are still Barcelona. This is still the new Camp, and uh, it, if Tottenham do pull this off, it'll
1: be one of the, the most famous results in their history, I would imagine. I mean, for me, it mostly just comes down to whether you know the obvious one, I suppose, whether if Barca play Messi, then you know this is not going to be a this is going to be a tough night versus. Whereas if they don't. I think it's kind of, it really is up for grabs. He really is a differential in that regard. Especially, there's, there's a lot of talk around Barca that um, Messi is now singularly motivated to win the Champions League this season because he kind of realises he and the club should have, should have more. They've wasted a few opportunities in the last few years. Um, I think we've seen that. We probably, we probably saw the result of that at Wembley when he was, in, for me, one of his greatest ever displays. Uh, um, absolutely destroyed Tottenham. Uh, But then I suppose the flip side of that Is that they all want to keep him fresh Um, So you you were at at the press conference today While I was on my way back from the Libertadores Uh, What what was the vibe about Messi And what's going to happen?
0: Well, uh, yeah, I was in in, uh, Valverde's press conference earlier And um, he actually brought up uh, A game against uh, Sporting last year when they It was a very, very similar situation actually They'd already qualified uh, for the second stage And they had a home game against Sporting and they rested a few players but still came out and performed as you would expect Barca to perform uh, they won 2-0 Messi I think came on in the second half or maybe at half time which I think just, just goes to, to show he, even though it's a, a dead rubber so to speak he really wants to be involved in these matches he's saved some of his best performances this season for the Champions League and I suppose if he's watched Tottenham playing recently he'll, he'll have had a look at them and, and, and thought I oh, quite fancy going go at
1: that Eric Dyer or um, Kyle Walker-Peters because that seems to be the, the, the kind of the shock starting news isn't it? It, look, it looks like he's going to be in a player like Pochino hasn't young, used too much a young player uh, who doesn't have much experience of occasions like this but well, I mean, we were talking on the way down here it, to basically pull off a result the, the vibe from Pochino has almost been it's been more a delusion I, mean, I was doing a bit of research about his um, his record in Camp now, which is actually No, it's as a player and a manager, it's almost appalling. Uh, He's he's been here ten times with with Espanol, lost nine, most of them heavily, but one of the results was, was, sorry, his single victory was actually probably the most relevant, the most important because it was in a highly pressurised situation. Espanol, he'd only been in the job two months. Espanol looked doomed. He hadn't got a win, and yet he kind of, but apparently in the build-up to that week, he was he was telling everyone, "You'll think I'm mad. We're going to do this. We're going to get out of this." And that basically conviction almost paid off or he paid off um, and it's been a similar vibe from Spurs, with Spurs this week I mean I, I think he's, he's been conveying a, a similar message to the team but he, he was like that at the press conference today was he not?
0: Yeah well, I mean we, we were um, you yeah, know we all know about Pochettino's optimism his, his almost kind of fanatical quasi-religious belief in his own players and, and what he can do with them and yeah Carl Walker-Peters uh, is in line to start Aurier is injured and so is Kieran Trippier so uh, Walker-Peters is, is going to start at a uh, right-back and I remember at the start of last season I think he played he started the first game of the season Walker-Peters uh, at Newcastle at St James' Park, which, which they won and everybody thought you know, it was going to be a breakthrough season for him but he barely played after that uh, I think he, he, went to, um, he went to career and won, won the under-20s World Cup but it, it does beg the question if he is as great a player as Pochettino says he is And, you know, he was waxing lyrical about him tonight, saying, oh, he's going to be a
1: fantastic success at the club. He's a world-class player. Why hasn't he played him more often? Because in some ways, the whole uh, comments or quite comments on uh, Kyle Walker-Peters, the vibe he's given off about him, kind of play into what he's trying to do with this game, which is a great, almost a necessary delusion about Spurs uh, against that team and that stadium and that player. Yeah, I mean, I suppose... The only way a team like Spurs is
0: going to win that game is with with that kind of industrial vat of delusion. Um, but equally, it's it's never going to be enough on its own. Uh, the The basic footballing fundamentals of the game dictate that Barcelona are going to have sixty or seventy percent possession. They're going to create lots and lots of chances. Tottenham. Tottenham's main chance is going to be on the counter-attack probably at set pieces and they're going to have to play out of their skins I mean like Barcelona is still Barcelona and Tottenham is still Tottenham so
1: as much as they're going to have to believe they're going to have to do a lot more than that as well, well I suppose we're a bit, it's a bit complicated because we don't know what Barcelona's team is going to be whether it's even going to be half strength because half strength it, I mean say if Busquets if Bus is there along those lines it makes it more difficult but I I think if Messi doesn't play but doesn't start I think Spurs will win and even if he doesn't, or even if he does start, I still kind of I don't know—I still kind of fancy them. I think they're picking up good form. This is also traditionally the time of year when uh, Jesus Perez's uh, conditioning program starts to kick in, and, and, and Spurs do pick up form and get big results away from home. So I'm, I'm going to go for Spurs in this one.
0: They—they they, they might not even need to win, of course. I mean, they—they they have to. They, all they have to do is match Inter Milan's result against uh, home against PSV. And so that that, that lends the, a whole different psychological dynamic to it as well. Um, I think somebody somebody asked Pochettino if he was going to follow the the score, and he said, "Yeah, well, of, of course, of course we are." Um, but yeah, it's, um, it's 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 going to be one of those nights. It's where the I guess the emotional test is going to be almost as tough for them as the you know, the physical test or the sporting test. Um, so many of them won't have played in the new Camp before. I've never been to the new Camp before. I don't know what it's like, but I, I imagine it's it's a, a kind of an emotional overload on on a different level from what they play in week in week out.
1: Yeah, Larice mentioned haven't played there before, um, and talking about what a big pitch it is. Which certainly you do get a sense of that In anything the press seats when you're pie. It is, one of the, I mean, undeniably one of the best stadiums in Europe. I still have the Bernabeu ahead of it though. So, so yeah, yeah I think Bernabeu kind of a, it's the steeper stands with the burnabout, that gives it a kind of more epic feel. It's more enclosed. But, uh, the Camp Nou is a bit more open. It maybe takes away from some of, it, some of its grandeur but it's obviously still one of the best in Europe. Um, well, speaking of one of those lights, Anfield. Anfield, yeah. yeah. Well, um, they're going to do it, aren't they?
0: Uh, history and, I guess, emotion and I suppose the uh, form suggests that Liverpool
1: will do it. They play... Napoli and uh, What's the equation there? They they have to win. Uh, they have to win either by one goal or sorry, no. They have to win one nil or else win by two goals because of the way the uh, the head to head records work out. So a one nil win, which, which seems very unlikely given how both teams play, or else win by two goals. And I, you really get the feeling with all the talk of Olympiacos and all that, it's going to come down to that. It's going to we're going to get that early goal. Maybe get in get ahead. Napoli will come back an equalizer and it will get it'll get down to the last 10 15 Liverpool will need those two goals or one goal and that'll, that, that'll be it they'll, they'll do it
0: I mean, one of the most remarkable games uh, at, at Anfield in the last few years is that Dortmund game when when they, you know they needed three or four in the last you know 30 or 40 minutes but uh, I, I just get the feeling that whatever Liverpool need to do
1: they'll somehow find a way to do it well, here, actually here's an interesting one. I mean when you talk about history and psychology and this sort of thing it's the sort of thing that's Dismissed as a bit, you know, old hat, cliched. But I do genuinely think history starts to inform occasion like this, in the sense that so Spurs are a team with no history, or sorry, no, no, no. Hang on, I better, no, no history of massive comebacks like that in Europe. Not no history, but got, I'm going to get in trouble for this time I? But they've got, they've got no history of basically those sort of a games like Liverpool do at Anfield or away from home in in in, in the Champions League. And I, I do think when when there is when that sort of thing is talked about in the build-up to these games, it does create a kind of a, a psychological momentum at a game, I and mean, that gets into players' heads. I think, and I sort it comes down to the last ten or fifteen minutes, I mean, and I've heard players talk about this in the past. That then it starts to forge fire. Believe that it creates that kind of that that delusion that we're talking about. Uh, so. W- 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 it, it, it almost gives them a, a more, a greater intensity of application in everything they do on a pitch, because there's that that belief from you know, what this club is about, and I I, I do think it has a, a tangible effect on events on events like this. And, and given the opposition, certainly that that that's doubly true. If anything, I mean Napoli
0: are, are a team that aren't going gonna. gonna... Sit back, they're not necessarily going to come and come and play a you know a cool calculating sort of game. They 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 like to mix it up as well. It it it's got the makings of I suppose quite a chaotic game, and that if it gets to the last twenty minutes and it's still quite tight, that's really only going to suit one team.
1: Yeah, but I don't think it can get tight. I I I don't think even if. Say, for Napoli, the occasion dictates the game as tight. It's just, like, as you alluded to there with that Dortmund game, or even the Seville game that Liverpool actually lost in the final, I, I think it's just going to be too open an affair. Um, although, maybe one of the more interesting things is, particularly in relation to the Bournemouth game on Saturday, whether we might now see the return of Liverpool's of the property clock ball intensity. Because it's been something that's been missing, really, for the first three months of the season. And you know, a lot of the talk is that he's waiting... Until later in the season, so they can probably they can go on a sustained run rather than kind of burning out early, as many people seem to expect. Um, but I suppose this will be one of the times to maybe unleash it to release the beast.
0: Yeah, I mean, we this is this is around the time of the season last year when Liverpool really started kicking into gear, and especially Salah started kicking into gear. I mean, it, it gets forgotten a bit, but the, the first two or three months of last season, Liverpool were. A really skittish a bit of a mess sometimes uh even when they were winning they, they, they were conceding they were conceding a lot of goals from set pieces tottenham ripped them apart at wembley um you know united did a job on them uh in that nil nil draw it, it was it was a really sort of inconsistent uh liverpool side and it was only really when the fixtures started piling up and and, and they started getting into the christmas period that they really got that momentum um and for all their kind of fitfulness in the, in the first three months of the season, uh, there were signs in that Bournemouth game that they are just beginning to pick up a bit of that attacking momentum again. Wait, are they going to do it? Yeah, yeah, they're going to do it. I think.
1: Yeah, I've already said they will. Yeah, so yeah.
0: I, I, yeah. I just think the the noise, the atmosphere, the fervour, the kind of the, the weird sort of paranoia that it, it manages to induce in in opposing teams uh, that that will will get the job done as much, as much as they you know whatever they do on the pitch. And, and I suppose, yeah, I mean, if we're, if we're talking about kind of fervid atmospheres, you've, you've kind of uh, you've just come out of one. I, 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 like uh, you were at the Copa Libertadores final yesterday.
1: Um, could you could you tell us who won, please? <laughs> we, <laughs> Thank you very much for the uh, the Neil the Neil Custis arguments. Um, the winners were River Plate, so you came from behind. Uh, and fair play to them. Yeah, and fair play to them. Um, it was... Now, in terms of the, in terms of the atmosphere, obviously, we've already discussed in the pod all this controversy about moving it from... Uh, when it's, well, moving the second leg from River Plate's home stadium to a neutral venue in what did seem a relatively transparent attempt to create an event around the final and maybe set a dangerous precedent for, for football in terms of now... Because of one of the regulations has been that it, uh, events and federations can't play... Um, can play these big games can play these properly competitive games outside their geographical area FIFA gave a special dispensation for this and actually Ball were or, one, of the, one of the reasons we heard for that was apparently why Madrid were so willing to host this game it wasn't just because of these, all, all these plans to host the league games in America but also apparently to do with 2030 which is obviously relevant to the yeah, World Cup Yeah, because like, Spain are basically gonna, Spain and Portugal are going to pitch a bid for 2030 as well to rival England or, or as it might be the case uh, Britain and, Ar- and Ireland bit and on the other side yeah, Argentina, Paraguay and Uruguay and I suppose one feasible argument there could be well look we had to host our biggest game if, if it comes right down to the same but anyway it did create a bit of a sanitised superclassical in terms of like say the atmosphere was nothing like the Boca Juniors training session I went to three days before the initial, initially uh, postponed game but there was enough to the crowd and the game itself was actually excellent
0: where did, where did all the fans come from did, did, did most of them make the trip over or were they, were they Argentinian expats
1: oh, yeah yeah mo- most of them made the trip over uh, which is actually remarkable to do at sure notice because it was only confirmed in Madrid eight days beforehand um, but I, I, kind of, I remember uh, a, fr- a friend of the podcast and the independent Ewan McKenna who lives in Brazil was flying back home from uh, he was flying back home for Christmas on Friday from Belo Horizonte and he said there was a, a load of Argentine fans, a lot of River Plate Boca fans, on his flight from there. So I suppose that maybe that reflects how they were looking for whatever route to try and get. He, like he went through. He went from Valhazan well, through Sao Paulo to, to London. So evidently, a lot of them did that and went on to uh, to Madrid. But yeah, there, there was there was a lot of that. A, a lot. You would not want to be on that plane, would you? <laughs> uh, in terms of how boisterous it might be. The potential for kicking off as well. Yeah, yeah, although, well, that's actually one of the things about it, I suppose this is why maybe the argument about it being so (laughs) sanitised, given what happened around the first leg with the, sorry, the postponed second leg, um, with the the bus getting attacked and, you know, the potential of violence and, you know, issues in the city, the the feel around this one was very much one of friendship. I mean, there was all these photos of Baca and River fans in, in Madrid, you know, hugging each other and, and I, I don't know, I mean, it was really, really tense towards the end of the game like, I have to say, I haven't felt pure nerves and anxiety in a stadium like that Since maybe the 2014 World Cup Final, 2010 World Cup Final Because I mean, it literally means the world to these uh... what, what was the score? And I'm not, I'm not kidding, what was the score? <laughs> so uh, Bocker went 1-0 up uh, just before half-time uh, One of the best goals I've ever seen live, genuinely uh, Aesthetically it was so good uh, through ball, little hop over the defenders, despairing dive, and then a brilliant finish uh, from Benedetto. Um, River Plate pulled him back with a lovely lovely pass to move, involved a 1-2 from their, their striker Prado. Um, and then Quintero basically won the game in extra time with a, with a brilliant long-range finish. But, but it went right down to the wire. So in, in, the, in the last two minutes of the game, Bocca hit the post. There's immense pressure, keepers up there, ball breaks. And there's this mad run up to the other end of the pitch as, uh, as River make it three uh, one.
0: So am I right in thinking that next year or, or or pretty soon they're just going to a single a single game final in a, in a neutral venue? Yes, yeah, so it's going to be in
1: Santiago next year. Does, does that not just sort all the problems of you know fans being dicks? Well, feasibly, I suppose. I mean, it's going to have to be a better policed event than what happens there in the Monumental. Well, I mean, one of the, one of the arguments is that. So so in the, in these games, as has been the case with with fixtures involving the Big Five in Argentina or the Buenos Aires Big Five over the last few years that no way fans are allowed to go to the fixtures because of the the, the potential for violence. So now you'd have the, both groups of fans travelling in huge numbers. But that happened here and it was it was no it, it was it was no problem at all. Now granted it was it was there was very little scope for trouble because everything was so I mean <laughs> it was described as a, a, a triple ring fence around the stadium, uh, and it was a really visible police presence. It was really difficult. I mean, even as a journalist, we, we had—I we, we, was there with Rory Smith of the New York Times. We had to hop over four fences just to uh, to get to the press get to the press entrance.
0: Over four
1: fences. Yeah, yeah, over well, over a little kind of fence. But, but because everything was so closed off, um, so there was very little scope for trouble. But I wonder, what uh, I mean, the, the Spanish police are notorious for. You know, they're quite prepared to uh, get stuck into football fans, that they had the, at the hit, merest hint of trouble. Uh, so I wonder whether that, did that play into it as well.
0: I mean, you know, you know those um, those kind of US cop movies where, like, about this, this Maverick cop that, that doesn't follow the rules and doesn't care about procedure. He just wants to. Um, Spanish police is basically full of those sorts of people. Um, like, just going back on, on the Argentinian side, or, or, or sorry, on the Conmebol side, um, is there is there a sense that? like enough is enough and, and, and they really really have to change something and, and this might be the catalyst to actually get some professionalism and, and, and some organisation in, into that body
1: yeah um, I mean they've already been accused of a kind of a naked commercial opportunism but at the same time this genuinely is an opportunity for common uh, ball and something they're very much aiming for uh, before the postponed second leg uh, they actually invited the English speaking media that were at the final which is me, Rory, Jonathan Wilson and Josh Robinson of the Wall Street Journal, another friend of the podcast, um, to uh, an interview with the president of the Commonwealth, Alejandro Dominguez. And one of his big things, one of his big arguments was, it, it wasn't even getting ahead of the Champions League, as opposed to there'd be all sorts of political elements to, to saying that, but he kept kind on of bridging the gap to the Champions League and all the plans they have and the, and the commercialism. But I suppose one of the arguments there is that, and it, it was something he did mention himself, That they don't want to lose, I suppose, what is perceived as uh, De authenticity compared to what he previously described as the PlayStation football of the Champions League.
0: I mean, I suppose my main takeaway from this is that um, you know it's it sounds like a pretty trite thing to say, but ultimately you can't you can't keep fans out of the picture, as it were. I know. I know. It's like a very sort of trite, like Henry Winter thing to say, but uh, football is about the fans, and no matter how much you try and sanitize the game, you try and gentrify it, uh, fans have a way of interposing themselves on the story, uh, whether through fair means or foul. Uh, and you know, we we have seen it again this week when uh, Chelsea Chelsea play Manchester City, two of the best teams in the Premier League, and we're not talking about. Uh, like Manchester City losing their first match of the season or you know, Pep Guardiola's side or, or Mauricio Sarri's side. We're talking about something that a fan did, uh, one, one single
1: fan uh, to
0: Raheem Sterling and his, his reaction to it.
1: Yeah, and I think Sterling deserves huge credit for this. I mean, the absolute presence of mind to use what is one of the most negative football stories of the year. And yet use it for positive effect, for proactively positive effect, in the way he's actually used it to highlight one of the issues that leads to such problems, that plays a part, which is, I suppose, the coverage of uh, young black players with that, um, that Instagram post that really has gone around the world now.
0: Yeah, there's actually something quite... There's something both refreshing and, and I suppose, in a way, slightly ironic about, about the fact that a young guy without many qualifications who you know kind of left school and, and went straight into professional football um is essentially schooling some very well educated people the people of the media people of the footballing establishment uh about the politics of race and the realities of being a young black footballer in Britain today a young black man in Britain today uh and he, he has spoken with far more articulacy and discretion I suppose and judgement uh, and nuance than than we are used to to reading either you know in the media or, or watching on telly or hearing on on Sunday supplement or, or, or whatever or, or even listening to on a on a newspaper football podcast is um, it he was too polite I guess to, to, to name the the organs involved but you know we, we shouldn't be we shouldn't be so squeamish he's talking about the daily mail and the sun these are the these are the the two main offenders here and i know this is going to sound a little bit like you know not all media but frankly there are are good guys and bad guys here and the mail and the sun have consistently published the most egregious stories about about raheem sterling that it's inconceivable they would publish about a, a,
1: a white footballer Well, I suppose one of the primary issues with this is, even even in some. I mean, we've all seen the examples about some of the worst headlines about Sterling, but even some of the ones that are kind of are maybe a bit more subtle, but essentially they're kind of playing into negative st- stereotypes about young black males. In the sense, of, you know, almost being criticised from going from poor to then flaunting as well. Um, I think one of them was cited as "footy idiot," just being being thick. Um, but but also you have been equally irritated by some of the response to this yeah well I I just
0: uh, I just think that it's it's remarkable how sections of the established media uh, and established journalists are now cottoning on to this issue as if they've just discovered what racism is like uh, like stone me I'm shocked shocked to discover that there is racism oh hang on Just the it's the what I find you know really distasteful here is the way that a lot of the journalistic establishment and a lot of the media and you know specific journalists I guess have cottoned on to this issue as if it's the first time they've seen racism like Australians in South London who haven't seen snow before it's it's um. It's it's like I'm shocked, shocked to discover that there's racism in English football. And it it really smacks of opportunism. Uh, It smacks of opportunism. It smacks of a a bit of a white saviour complex, to be honest, because people were talking about these issues years and years ago. Raheem Sterling was talking about these issues years and years ago. It was happening to him. It was happening to black players before him. But a lot of fans and a lot of the media got into a very complacent state of mind where we thought, Racism is a thing that, that's in the past and got solved. They got complacent about it, and now they're shocked that it's returning. And people are, are, are surprised to learn that somebody, a black footballer, is getting getting racially abused at a Premier League game. I'm, I'm, I'm really sorry. That, that's, that's not, that, that doesn't wash with me. And, and a lot of the people that are taking this on are, quite frankly, not the people who should be taking these on. are the people who should be sitting down and shutting up for a bit. I mean... I read something by, uh, by Matthew Saeed in The Times today who, who wrote a big sort of comment piece uh, on page three of the game supplement of The Times about how uh, it, it's absolutely shocking that this has happened and, and, and uh, really condemning this racism in the, in, in, in the most really opportunistic terms. When Matthew Saeed had the chance to condemn racist, racist abuse of a black female footballer, Enia Luko, this is only a few months ago he he wrote a column he wrote more than one column doing everything he could to discredit anya lukos claims that she was being uh, she had been uh, racially abused by her manager and, and did everything he could to downplay that situation so for him to to to, to come in you know, riding on his white horse now with his metaphors is and I, 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 re- I find that really quite, quite disingenuous and really quite offensive. You know, and we mentioned we mentioned Henry Winter earlier, who's, who seems to have sort of um, barged to the front of this particular bandwagon, and and he's written he's, he's written a, a piece as well, and where, where he, he talks about Raheem Sterling as a, a an upstanding young man, he's a, he's, a, he's a model professional, he's he's not some, he's not a blingy footballer like like you know like those other guys. I mean, because it, obviously it's it's terrible to be a blingy footballer. I, I, the, the, the the language and, and the, the, the terms and the context that is still being used to discuss this issue are, are still really, really inadequate, and the wrong people are, are, are at the front of this. To, to be honest, the, the, the wrong people are putting this at the front, putting themselves at, at the front of this issue for the wrong reasons. Uh, blingy is a highly racialised term. I mean, I you you rarely find that used about uh, a white footballer. You know, you could you could call Zlatan Ibrahimovic blingy, but uh, you know he he's, he writes about how oh he's um, you know he, he doesn't ha- he has mannequins for um, for, for curling footballs round, not for draping fashion on fashion. You know labeled on what's wrong with like what's wrong with having designer clothes it's it's this idea that black footballers are fine if they adhere to the norms and the morays of established white culture and that is why I find this entire bandwagon not only very amusing but quite depressing and really quite
1: ridiculous Darren Lewis did an excellent piece in the mirror today uh, talking about this whole issue of um, subliminal messages uh, uh, exactly what you refer to it as the, the, the language around this issue
0: yeah i mean like like henry's written sterling's not flash he's not extravagant um as as if these are the, the these are qualities or traits that would disqualify him from the rightful sympathy of pages two and three of the times um yeah i, I, I mean the, the black players uh and black black people in the media and, you know, older people actually have been going on about these issues for years and years and years. But people haven't been paying attention because, frankly, it wasn't fashionable to do so. Um, now that an England footballer has been racially abused in a mar- the marquee Premier League game of the weekend, now suddenly it's a sexy story. Give me a break.
1: Um, well, actually I suppose as regards all that though what next do you think there's been enough of uh, do you think I suppose Sterling himself has made this enough of a prominent issue that we might actually change because I, suppose, I mean one of the issues throughout all this is this has actually been something that's been flagged for what over two years now and yet still we had the stream of this type of, of, of story that type of language so do you expect it to change now? I think it'll get worse before it gets better
0: I, I interviewed Lord Oosley, the head of Kick It Out, uh, a few months ago, and in, in, again, an article that was very, very poorly read and, and, and shared, and, like, not many of the journalistic establishment had a lot to say about this, but he was talking about how the complacency that we have about racism, whether it's uh, on the terraces or online or sometimes even on the pitch, is, is staggering. The, the far right has been trying to worm its way back into football for years and years and years. Um, and only now are they are they beginning to, to have some success. I mean, the Democratic Football Lads Alliance, which uh, is neither democratic, uh, nor football, nor an alliance, uh, nor really very good lads, um, are they're, they're, they're trying to worm their way back in, into the territories. They're, they're, they're using fan culture as a means of spreading their horrific message. And people haven't been talking about that because, again, it's not Raheem Sterling and it's not Manchester City, and it didn't happen on live on Sky Sports.
1: Well, actually, props to Jacob Steinberg there. who's done some great work in terms of uh, in the Guardian in terms of some uh, well, basically one of basically one of their coaches who, att- who attended such a rally, and then only last week to his report about one of the uh, well one of the supporters on the fans committee. Also, awesome. but well, and even some, some of the responses to that were depressing, as if kind of you know, <laughs> basically what's illegal about going to a march? Not not recognizing the uh, the fundamental problem.
0: Yeah, I mean, and, and the fundamental problem here is really it's deep and underlying. I mean, you, you can't really talk about um, racial abuse at a football game unless you talk about uh, like Raheem Sterling did the, the the media coverage of black footballers, but you can't talk about that without talking about the underlying reasons why. So many people feel it is now accept socially acceptable to to be racist in public, and that comes down from that comes from the the, kind of the, the erosion of Social norms that has been fuelled by the politics. The erosion of the welfare state.
1: Well, yeah, exactly, yeah. The erosion of the welfare state as well, fostering division, fostering you know, people basically looking for scapegoats for why their life isn't as prosperous as it should be.
0: Yeah, the, the, the rise of far right politics. The the, the the general feeling of disenfranchisement uh, in a lot of white working class communities. you you can't talk about this specific issue without touching on so many of these wider issues and my feeling is that if you treat this as as simply like a football story to fill some space on a Monday morning you're never going
1: to get close to the root of the problem and in that regard the discussion has only really begun Uh, we are sadly out of time here given well um... Our, our desserts are coming (laughs) <laughs> not, not to make light of, a, of such an issue but um, yeah I, I feel this is something we're going to be discussing in a lot more detail uh, probably in the studio with the rest of the staff um, over the next few weeks but uh, thanks for listening um, if, you, if, if, if suddenly, so, suddenly Tottenham and Liverpool's uh, big matches in Europe feel a lot less consequential <laughs> but, uh, but thank you cheers thanks Johnny thank you